0: This is The Guardian.
1: Last week, levelling up minister Deanna Davison resigned from government, not because of a scandal or a spat something more surprising. The reason that I quit uh, two weeks ago as a minister, I was levelling up minister in the government, um, was because i struggle with chronic migraine. um, And it reached a point where it felt that I wasn't doing the job to the level that it needed. She's not alone. It's estimated that one in seven adults in the UK gets migraines, myself included. In fact, migraine is the third most common disorder in the world and the third highest cause of disability. To be in a position where you're giving speeches or responding to questions in the House of Commons chamber, struggling to form sentences, it's just not good. Here in the UK, a new drug has just been recommended that might bring hope for people who haven't responded to other medication. So today we're exploring the latest science on migraines and their treatments and asking whether one day sufferers could say goodbye to migraines forever. From The Guardian, I'm Madeleine Finlay, and this is Science Weekly. Peter Goadsby, you're director of NIHR King's Clinical Research Facility and professor of neurology at King's College London. And you've been described as the man forcing the world to take migraines seriously. Do you think treating migraines should be a bigger priority?
0: Oh, yes. Treating migraines certainly should be a bigger priority. It might surprise you to know that migraine is the commonest neurologic problem that goes to general practice, it's the commonest neurological problem referred to secondary care neurology. Yet, it is at the bottom of the list when it comes to specialized clinics around the country to deal with migraine. So, it's substantially being ignored. It typically strikes down people between the age of 18 and about 65 to 70. And these are the productive years, you might say, to the government, the taxpaying years even. So better education, more attention to the disorder will be good for patients and actually very good for society.
1: And the symptoms and severity of migraines can vary wildly for different people. I suffer from migraines and I start out by often feeling like I'm in a doll's house and then I go a bit blind. And actually, my headaches aren't too bad. But when I speak to other people, they might not get those tingles in their eyes beforehand, but then they'll get such severe headaches that they want to or do throw up. So how would you actually define what a migraine is?
0: The official definition, if you like, is a disorder where the headache is typically one-sided, typically throbs. It's typically severe, but not necessarily. And it's typically associated with one or other combination of nausea, vomiting, if you like, for a bonus, Light and sound sensitivity, and sensitivity to head movement, and that they're the constellation of the main symptoms. Quite a remarkable range of symptoms. It's a it's a syndrome. It's not one thing.
1: Ah, well, I was just about to ask that because when you have so many different symptoms, and and people describe them so differently, I did wonder whether migraine is actually really one thing at all.
0: It's an interesting question. So there there are broad themes. And on top of the broad thing, some things are emphasized more than others. As an example, if you ask people in Europe or the US, which of the sensory sensitivities is the main one, more people will say light sensitivity than sound sensitivity. If you ask the same question in Taiwan, I just learned this about 10 days ago at the International Headache Congress, uh, what they will say is sound sensitivity over light sensitivity. So there are There are themes, and then there are really interesting variations.
1: And so with all these different symptoms, often they happen in different stages. There are kind of steps in a migraine. So I wonder if you could take me through each one.
0: Yes, there are stages to migraine, and the stages overlap. So the first stage to think about is what's called the premonitory or prodromal phase, which is dominated by things like brain fog, concentration problems, fatigue, sleepiness, yawning, mood change, neck discomfort, passing more urine, craving sweet or savoury things. And this can occur for hours or even days before the actual head pain starts. There are neurologic symptoms, typically visual disturbance, flashing sharp edged light that starts in the periphery and grows over about 20 to 30 minutes and then uh, then goes away, sometimes associated with some loss of vision behind it. Followed by the pain phase, one-sided, typically throbbing, mostly severe pain, and then a resolution phase, which is called the post where people typically feel batteries run down, really tired, concentration problems, just don't, just feel off, and that can go on for hours or up to a day.
1: Peter, you won the Brain Prize for your work on the causes of migraines and you've been at the forefront of this for a while. And so what's the current understanding of what causes a migraine and all these different stages of the migraine?
0: The migraine is an inherited disorder substantially. Most people will have a first-degree relative, mother, father, brother, sister, someone close who's also got headache. So there's the what you bring to the table, an inherited component. What happens in the brain is areas of the brain that are normally functioning to ignore sensation begin not to work. So a person with migraine doesn't get more light to be sensitive to light. What happens is the brain handles light differently, and so the perception increases. A person with migraine who's got sound sensitivity doesn't get people yelling at them, but their brain doesn't filter information, filter the sound information as it should.
1: In my brain, it feels like there's an electrical storm happening, almost as if there's all this kind of firing and misfiring going on. Is there anything in that? Does that reflect at all what happens during a migraine?
0: Well, we know that there are areas of the brain that are particularly active. There are patterns of activation, changes on brain functional imaging, that are quite consistent in migraine, in particular areas of the brain. There's a deep part of the brain called the hypothalamus, which is involved in regulating things like sleep and wakefulness. It's involved in driving you to eat. It's involved in body fluid control, for example. It's involved in pain control. So it's it's in the right sort of it's in the right sort of ballpark from a physiology perspective, and it pops up on functional imaging done in a number of ways. In fact, it's happening is a storm of sorts because the brain's getting overwhelmed by a whole lot of information that it normally ignores. And it's difficult to process.
1: How much discussion is there still in the science behind migraines? Because I've read things about it being a vascular issue, so the blood vessels dilating, but I've also seen that it could be something to do with our nerves. So how well do we really understand what's happening?
0: Uh, Historically, people have considered going to be a so-called vascular headache because about two-thirds of people have throbbing pain. I think the majority of those of us in the field now would not regard it as a vascular headache. Rather, we'd regard it as a nerve process that has gone wrong. Now, on the nerve side, there are two schools of thought. There's a peripheralist school, if you like, that thinks that the main problem is in the covering of the brain the so-called dura mater, and the nerves that serve the dura mater. So one idea is that those nerves are activated in migraine. And then there's a central school, you might say, that thinks of the main problem as nerve dysfunction within the brain itself. Those nerves that are low-level active all the time are noticed during migraine. And certainly because a threat to the brain, if you like, if brain dysfunction is happening, We think that that's why the pain is quite severe because the system is wired to really warn you that this is not good. Take cover.
1: And so I'm also really curious about the things that trigger migraines. I know for me, I do have that genetic link, but also there's a range of things that cause my migraines. I can predict that, you know, if I'm tired, if I'm hormonal, if I haven't eaten and then maybe had loads of sugar, I'm really testing my luck. So I wonder what kinds of things we know can trigger migraines.
0: You mentioned some of the really prominent ones. Menstrual cycle is clearly associated with increasing attacks, likelihood of attacks around the time of bleeding. That's a very well known and tried and true trigger, if I could say it that way. One of the problems with triggers is the extent to which they're premonitory and self-fulfilling. So you mentioned craving something sweet. You want to take something sweet when you're hungry. You could ask the question, is it that the sweet thing triggers your migraine or is it that the brain regions that tell you to eat, is it that they're dysfunctional and you get the attack? That said, there are certain reliable triggers. Alcohol is a pretty reliable trigger. Um, so many people would say, sadly, nitroglycerin, which is a treatment, glycerol dry nitrate's a treatment for heart problems. We think that irregularity of physiology, so irregular sleep, too much or too little, irregular exercise, too much or too little, irregularity. So we recommend regular sleep, regular meals, regular exercise, and regular grief, you might say, because it's the ups and downs that seem to challenge the migraine brain.
1: Now, migraines affect more women than men. I've read Three times as many, and I wonder, do you think that's why our understanding of migraines hasn't actually been that great historically?
0: Oh yes, I think that's pretty straightforward. I mean, migraines are disorder of typically forty plus or minus ten that sort of range women, and it's worse with uh, worse with menstruation. It's better where it, it settles down very much at menopause. Comes on with puberty. It's altered by pregnancy migraine has some associations with mood disorders and anxiety and dial back 50 years or 40 years maybe not so far and ask yourself what might be said of a 40 year old woman who has bad headache with her periods and maybe maybe seems somewhat anxious when that happens what are they going to get labeled as it was a really a a perfect storm of prejudice you might
1: say Now, recently, it does feel like there have been several steps forward in migraine research and treatment. So I wonder if you could give me the overview of what's available for people today in terms of medications.
0: What we have at the moment for the treatment of migraine are therapies for the attack, acute attack treatment and therapies to prevent the attacks coming in people who have sufficient number of attacks to want to take them. About 30 years ago, we got the first of the specific acute migraine treatments called the tryptans. They have some issues, which is why there are some new one, new class that's being developed, two new classes actually. One that gets away without any blood vessel constriction called the DITANS, and another new class that blocks calcitonin gene-related peptide, C G R P and they're called GPADs, G P A N T S. There's one that's just been licensed for use in Europe and just about in the UK called
1: And Peter, it was actually your work on these CGRPs, the calcitonin gene-related peptides, which are proteins that sit around the brain and have a link with migraines, that led to these new drugs being developed. But there's obviously still quite a lot left that we need to learn about migraines. So what are you excited to look at next?
0: It's great that these new medicines have really revolutionised life for some patients really revolutionized life because they're well tolerated and effective. But not everyone responds. So what we're most excited by at the moment is the next target that's been identified. It's called uh, pituitary adenylate cyclase activating polypeptide. I think the names are just going to get longer, but one has to put up with it. So a lot of things are happening and it's, it's very positive, I think. For a person who would be listening to this, who's had everything, particularly in the UK there'll be another GPAD license in the next three or four months, so they can't have had everything. And even after that, if they've had everything, there's a whole raft of other things that are coming. So there's a real optimism in the migraine field at the moment that we're going to be able to get on top of the vast majority and reduce the disability of the problem. It's really optimistic.
1: The way that you've described it, it does sound like a really exciting time for migraine research and for migraine sufferers that there are so many treatments on the horizon. I mean, can you imagine a time when no one even has to suffer a migraine?
0: Well, I can, and that might sound crazy. But six months ago at the American Academy of Neurology, we saw a publication using one of these pants called Ubrogepant, which is licensed in the US but not licensed in Europe, where it was given in the premonitory phase before the pain started in patients who recognised their premonitory symptom, and it stopped the pain coming. So people never have to have pain at all. And while that sounded, if I said that 12 months ago, people would think I was crazy, and maybe they'll still think I'm crazy, but this is a really well done, double-blind, randomised, controlled trial. So yes, you start to see the horizon of a pain-free world for people with migraine. We just have to invest a little bit more and try a little bit harder.
1: Well, Peter, that has left me with a whole lot of hope that one day in the future I might not have to deal with migraines. So it's been super fascinating. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Thanks again to Professor Peter Goadsby. We've put a link to the article about the new migraine drug on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. And that's it for today. The producer was Josh and Chana. The sound design was by Tony Onuchuku and the executive producer is Ali Bury. We'll be back on Tuesday. See you then. Hello, I'm Grace Dent. I'm back and I've been busy. Come for Eating, our award-winning podcast, is out now. With an exciting lineup, including Shirley Ballas, Bridget Christie, Jamie Demetrio, and many more. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Guardian.